together. Imagine how the world would be different if, as Indigenous people already know, we had a coherent way of relating to beings other than human. Well-meaning parents did it to them, right? In adherence to the narrative, right? The master narrative of success that has killed education and learning. And it's love that is the teacher superpower that is fighting against the fragmentations that are part of the master narrative we've been talking about and the education system that facilitates that master narrative that we've been talking about. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepida News. Today's guest is Maggie Favretti. Maggie is trained as a cultural historian and she spent 35 years helping students ask the question, why not now? She's an award-winning educator and has been recognized by President Obama for her work in environmental education. I'm really looking forward to your thoughts and comments on this podcast. I want to talk about something that's been on my mind recently, which is the fuzzy horizon of learning. Like many of the listeners here and people out in the world, I, I'm interested in a lot of things. And when I learn about different things that stretch me, pull me in all different kinds of directions, it's very hard for me to have these ideas roll off my tongue, my feelings, my emotions, my intuitions. They're, they're very chaotic. Then I think of all those things that I am a supposed expert in, whatever that might be. And many of you might think of what you're experts in. And, and these are the ideas that we've grappled with, that we're sure about, that we're certain about. I think a lot of the world's misunderstandings and the conflict happen because we remain in that area of wanting to stay experts and dueling ideas with other people. Who's right? Who's wrong? What's? Let me convince you of this. Let me convince you of that. I wonder what would happen if we all lived in our fuzzy horizon of learning. We make mistakes. We say things that later we regret in terms of uh, finding new perspectives. Things don't necessarily come off as clearly as maybe they could. But if we do this together, and if we start co-creating these ideas, these imaginations, maybe we won't be dueling with ideas as much. I'm not saying that there won't be any synergies and dinergies and, and ways that we might talk about points in different ways. But I wonder if this ability to work in this area that we're just trying to figure out together will move ideas forward, will move our emotions and our connections forward, and do so in ways that are, again, creative rather than destructive. And one of the things I would like to point out from this conversation with Maggie is how she talks about regenerative and degenerative, and there's no value judgment on either, provided that degeneration is part of the regenerative cycle. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Our articles and those of other writers are on www.intrepidednews.com. And looking forward to your thoughts, and I will leave space for my conversation with Maggie. Hi, Maggie. We're really excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, you are about to release a book, uh, and we certainly want to get into that. And you and I have uh, known each other for... I guess almost a year, if not more than that, something like that recently. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've had a chance to collaborate with you. And really, I wanted to take this opportunity to find out more about your thinking and specifically not just about your book, but some of the other work that you've done in uh, Puerto Rico uh, and in terms of some of your 
work in, in thinking around um, colonization, in terms of decolonization, in terms of climate breakdown, in terms of living systems, and just see how, how these things will really connect and, uh, and how we can, we can understand the world we live in in those ways. But the first thing I'll do is ask you the question, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Question, who are you? By the way, Benjamin, it's so nice to be here with you. Um, I uh, I love your podcast, everything you write. I just, it's not so much that I love the way you think. I just love the way you are and the way you are becoming and growing and the acknowledgement of that that's always front and center whenever anybody's speaking with you is, uh, it just rings true and resonates strongly with me. Um, so the question, who are you, is kind of loaded because I'm I'm not the same person um, exactly from moment to moment even. Um, so early in the morning, I'm a rower. Uh, late at night, recently, I've been very good at coughing. Um, I am learning to deal with a physical setback that I've never really experienced something like this before. So. I'm learning all the time. So if I were to try to describe myself in a word, I'm a learner. And so, I, and I guess I'm an expert learner by now since I'm almost 60 years old. And I, I hope that I've learned something about learning in all those years of learning. And, uh, and one of the basic things that I, I think is fundamental to the stories that I wanna tell is that learning and change are also embedded in time. And I feel very strongly that the current climate crisis has many people feeling that time is running out and that there is nothing that we can do to stop it. So that feeling, all of those powerful, powerful feelings about climate change, grief, guilt, fear, mistrust, all of those things that are so um, indicative of, of what I call future phobia, they are really foundationally about powerlessness. I just wanted to go deeper into this idea of learning as a function of time. And, and I'll open that up by asking the same question we ask everyone, which is how do you define learning? And maybe going a little bit further into what this is in terms of a function of time. So learning is change. Um, I, and I, I think I'll explain that a bit. Um, whenever we say we learn something, right, we are bringing in maybe it's knowledge maybe it's different feelings maybe it's an experience that enables us to be different from what we were moments before so in that sense the world is our teacher nature is our teacher our children are our teachers our peers are our teachers Everything in the web of interconnectedness that makes us who we are is teaching us all the time because we're constantly learning, which means we're constantly changing, right? 
And so humans are incredible learners, right? It's a human superpower because the reason why humans are as adaptable as they are is because they can not only learn from what is, they can also learn from what was, and they can learn from what they imagined. So human beings are really amazing learners. We're learning all the time, which also means we're changing all the time. And look, I use the expression all the time, right? Because it's all happening as a function of connecting past, present, and future. So we are changing as a function of time. We are learning as a function of time. We are never the same from moment to moment. Because even as I'm telling this story, I'm learning more about the story. I'm learning from you. Like we're connected, even though there's a screen and the other side of the earth, right, between us, I'm still seeing you nodding and, you know, focusing on what I'm saying. I'm learning from you about this story, even as I'm telling it. So a second ago, I was different from the way I am now. So learning is a function of time because we change in time, we learn in time, and learning as a function of being human is a way of connecting past, present, present, future in the moment, right? Like there's no stopping to go, okay, I'm going to connect the past to the present, right? Or stopping and saying, okay, this is the present, right? The present is the past and the future together, right? And the merging of that happens in the human mind and heart and body, right? I'm aging as we speak. And I'm taking in the earth. And I am, you know, believe me, I know it, right? With the allergies and the mold and all of that, you know, I am imbibing the earth. I'm drinking water so I can continue talking with you, that taking in of the past and making it the future, that is also an important role that all beings play, but human beings are, seem to be very aware of it and we can talk about it. This is a very important point about how we learn from each other, uh, how we learn, as you said, from nonverbal cues from reactions, um, responding to the moment. I think it also brings up another point about how we learn from non-human agents. And I'm not just talking about animals, I'm talking about what's around us, the light, the temperature, uh, the, the, the chair, because that affects the effects with an E and an A. And so fr from this point of view, what, what interests me here is the system that we have today, and I am, you know, it's 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 such a tired trope of it's an industrial system and so forth. But but there's a linearity, there's a there's a mechanistic piece to this system that says that I give you knowledge again, colonial, uh, or at least we can explore that. There's the possibilities of having that that, that colonial discourse because I'm the one who knows, right? I'm in a position of power to give you knowledge. Yeah. And that knowledge as well is chosen. Somebody selected that within the discourse. The discourse is as such, and I have decided that this is what needs to be known, regardless of who you are. But what it doesn't do is, is it doesn't open us up to the social piece, how we learn from one another, but also to the contextual piece. 
And so this is a radical shift in, in the way that we can conceive of school to the point where it, it, it even might break school. I just, just wanted to get your, your thoughts on, on some of this. I love that you asked that question because I'm, I'm in the midst of, of writing a blog on the decomposition of school. And in living systems, right, decomposition is life. It's life regenerating life. <laughs> life creating the conditions for more life. So when we apply that to what's happening, you said, well, this might even break school. Well, yes, in fact, school is already decomposing. And not that it was ever perfectly a stable stasis of ever a thing that was ideal and somehow it's less ideal because decomposition is an ideal state, right? It's the state of of shifting from one combination of essential elements to another combination of essential elements and all of the agency of all of those organisms that participate in that, right? So when we think about this, and you're helping me to think, to, to think about this right now, when we think about what that means in terms of learning ecosystems, which are the closest we can come to natural ecosystems when they are working well, right? Because it's about learning and learning is a function of being human in time and being part of the entire biocollective. And because learning happens to the entire biocollective, um, just as change does. So yeah, break school? Well, school is not gonna be school. If you think about learning as a function, an organism function within ecosystems, within the biocollective, within the interconnected, infinitely interrelated um, web that we are evolving in um, and, you know, life. So what does that mean? Well, I, I think what we need to do is to be responsive, observant, slow down, notice how little children learn. Because there haven't been as many interventions by colonial industrial forces yet. So we, we can just by watching our babies, we can see how they learn. And they don't have any concerns about learning from other species. They're learning all the time from everyone. Um, also, just looking at how children are open to wonder and to awe and are moved by it, can even be overwhelmed by it. My, my mother is fond of telling a story about me when I was maybe two, and we were at Niagara Falls, and I wouldn't look at it. And they kept saying, but we're at this important place. You have to look at it. I kept saying, but I don't need all that water. <laughs> so somewhere along the line, I had learned that water was a gift, that you take what you need 
that it's actually frightening to have so much water that you don't need. Somehow, you know, and now I'm interpreting this, of course, with my adult mind. I don't know what I was thinking when I was two, but it was a direct, emotional, heartfelt response. I don't need all that water. My daughter tells a story about a plant that she came to know, really a tree. And it's called a, a black gum tree in the United States. Probably list is other names for it in other places. And she was she learned in college that if you couldn't identify it as anything else, it was probably a black gum tree. So she learned a deficit, right? A deficit mindset around this particular species. And so that's the way she learned how to identify it. And then she went to work in a forest that had lots of them. And she learned from them how to identify them because of what they are, not because of what they aren't. And she said she felt the first time she successfully identified a black gum tree, Nissa sylvatica is the Latin name, by what it is instead of what it isn't. She said she was flooded with this feeling of contentment and well-being. As if for the first time, the tree acknowledged her. Or as if there was some kind of reciprocal noticing of each other for the first time. And it was when she, she named the tree by its name for what it is because of what it is instead of because of what it isn't. So we can take that lesson into thinking about learning and being how we can help to create learning experiences that are based on what other beings are and what they can teach us. And we, so we, we want to make sure that children know their non-human relatives. We want them to hang on to that delight in that, that they experienced as a child. I'm sure my daughter had experienced that feeling of well-being and contentment before, but in all the intervening years of schooling, she had forgotten that feeling until Nissa Silvatica, the black gum tree, brought it back to her, brought that recognition back to her. And it changes the way that we become, right? The way we learn when we actually are open to feeling that connection. So as expert learners, what we wanna do is to find those moments in our young children, and make those moments possible to the extent that we can as we grow older. Imagine how the world would be different if, as indigenous people already know, we had a coherent way of relating to beings other than human. And this is, this is the idea of intra-action as well, about, about letting the, the dynamic um, really uh, 
topology of, of, of where we are and, and, and being realizing we are there, not at the center, but we are there as part of a dynamic interplay between, again, living things, non-living things, and everything that's around us. And, and just saying, we are not the center. We are not separate. We are a part of this topology. And that changes. You can't take us apart. It's coherence, right? It's a coherent whole. Stop trying to take us apart. So, so we can't separate ourselves from the assemblage that we have, the topology that we have, the, the environment that we are with, with living and non-living things. And so it questions the Newtonian dynamic of being able to have things, as I said, cause and an effect and how we're separate, how there's an observer. But what it also does, very importantly, is make it so that, you know, we talk about, say, saving the planet. But when we say we want to save the planet, the planet's going to be fine. It's, it's from this, this human-centered way of trying to save the planet. When really, you're trying to save us, right? And we're not trying to save the planet for the future. And I want to go back to this idea of, of the colonialism because we say we want to save the planet for our future, but we're okay. There's a lot of people out there who aren't okay now. And, and I, find it, I find it both anthropocentric to want to save the planet for the future or save the future of the planet and colonial to say that we can even think about the future when there's what 2.8 billion people who are go hungry every every day and think of all the people who are living in a state of colonial oppression right not just puerto ricans but what about indigenous people all around the world and these are the people that we need to be in co-conspiratorial alignment with because they understand coherence Right. It's that simple. And if we're thinking about those of us who have been schooled away from coherence, who are living this fractured story of capitalist extractivism and competition, who are harmed by this story every day, even if we're well off. Right. Think about the children of the well off who grow up not knowing themselves because they've been chasing this idea of success that has nothing to do with coherence. So we've been split off from that and we need to come home and we're looking for a way to come home. So we need to look at the pain points. Where are the, the points where the system is prevented from decomposing in the ways that it could be. One of those is in teacher preparation. So we need to renaturalize teacher preparation. We need to indigenize or rewild teacher preparation. We need to think differently about learning, what do I want to say, learning spaces. So I'm about to teach a class in ed policy. And I'm hoping that once we have this discussion about where have your ideal learning experiences in your life taken place, we will find ourselves meeting outdoors. I'm hoping, right? I'm not going to force them to do it, but I'm hoping that they come to that realization that in fact, they're best childhood learning experiences probably did not take place in a classroom. And so, you know, like we just had this experience in Puerto Rico 
where kids with their teachers designed the optimal experience for them to create climate curriculum. And of course, it was in the woods. And so kids invited teachers, teachers invited kids who could be their mentors that they felt they could learn from. And together they went camping in the middle of the woods. Some of them had never been camping before. They were literally outside the box. And so the climate, civic action, learning experiences they designed for themselves to enact once school begins again in the fall are phenomenal. And they agreed they could never have done it if they were in a school, so in a school building. So we got to get outside. We got to think about learning differently and all the ways in which authentic, naturalized learning, coherence happens. And this, is, this brings up another point because a lot, a lot of teachers will, will wonder, how do we get kids outside? Why would we get kids outside? I've got this curriculum to do. And, and less, so, less so about this, this notion about freeing them, but I, I want to go back a little bit to what you mentioned about even rich white kids uh, are separated from the South because we can talk about the colonial discourse, we can talk about oppression, indigenous um, communities being, being repressed, and, and, and really the colonial discourse is, is everywhere. It's not just about certain ideas like critical race theory or whatever that, that, that are going to change it. The narrative that we hear is also values-laden. It's also rich in a, in a dominant story that we have taken up so strongly that we don't even notice it. We think that it's, that it's neutral. And that's the issue. And there's so much fear in it. Wealthy kids are afraid. They're, they're absorbing the anxiety from their parents that they might not stay in that socioeconomic class. That at any moment, unfortunately, many wealthy families, not all of them, but many of them define their success materially. So the materialism as the fundamental thread of the extractive capitalist narrative affects these kids in everything they do. Everything counts. If you ask a ninth grader what they've heard about high school, everything counts. They no longer feel free to choose to explore an interest in a club because they know it's going to be viewed as, are you signing up for the right clubs to get you into the right college, which is just another form of materialism. And so when you talk about how these kids would be so much healthier if we got rid of all those external measures they're always chasing and prepping for and tutoring for and all of that, let's just get rid of them. They're terrified to do it. They cannot let go because they've learned that the way to get ahead in this story of getting ahead materially is to ace those tests. So they don't want to get rid of them. Even if those tests have become the lowest common denominator, right? So if you're in an applicant pool to an Ivy League college where everybody has fours and fives on their AP tests, 
admissions people just draw a line through that, right? Because it doesn't distinguish them from anybody else. So why are we spending so much time in, on that, right? These kids are not able to know themselves because so much emphasis is placed on all of these measures that are meaningless. So they discover, and so many of them that I taught would end up in my office in tears, spring semester, senior year, they had gotten into the college of their parents' choice, and now what? They didn't know who they were. They didn't know what they were interested in. They felt completely unprepared to be an adult. And well-meaning parents did it to them, right? In adherence to the narrative, right? The master narrative of success that has killed education and learning. And bringing it back to this idea that we live in this, in this world where the context has so much to say about our experiences and our learning experiences, the, the grades that they have, the documentation, that's not a kid problem. That's an adult problem in order to be able to sort them. And yet we're sorting them without taking into consideration the context. And you can tell me, oh, but they have essays and we get to know who they are based on their essays and where they come. But none of that. They're manufactured. And, and tell me that you know what it's like to live in that community. You don't. You have a representation of what that is. By, by, by putting numbers on a piece of paper, the documentation for the adults, it completely decontextualizes the person. It dehumanizes the person. And that's exactly what happens, that they don't know who they are. That's right. Exactly. And so one of the big things in the United States that we have to look at closely is how much pain college admissions is causing to K-12 learning, right? So it's one of the main drivers of why we won't let go of these tests, why we won't let go of these measures. Oh, well, colleges have to have a standardized test, so they have something standard. Statistically, it's not standard, right? I mean, it's, it's meaningless. And a lot of college admissions people know that, but they're in a system too. So yeah, we have to, we, there's a lot that we need to work on. Uh, and so that's higher education is sort of, has to be one of the, of the key uh, levers that can be pulled to change the system as a whole. Um, and so, and they could do it because they're in crisis now too. They're decomposing which is a great opportunity for, uh, for change, for life, to get down to the essential elements, right? The carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen of learning. What is it? Tell us about your book. When is it coming out? What is it about? Um, and give us a, a, a preview of, of what we might expect. It's kind of a distillation of everything we've been talking about. Um, so it's called Learning in the Age of Climate Disasters. And it's out, hopefully, December of 22. So it'll be copywritten 23. Um, fingers crossed. The proofs are coming today. So I'm excited about that. I have a week to turn those around. Um, it's essentially telling the story of what future phobia is, which I've already done. So we don't need to revisit that. But then looking at how, when we align with nature, 
it enables our generative power. Like we know what degenerative power is. Thank you, colonialism and capitalism and top-down hierarchies, sorting, right? All of that, right? That's degenerative power. Nature's given us at least six ways of thinking about regenerative power, right? The power we have with our coherent personhood, right? The power we have with our interrelatedness, the collaborative power of human beings. Like we all know we're stronger when we roll in together, to quote Elizabeth Jampierre, than when we ro roll in by ourselves. The power that we have because of our place and our sense of belonging and rootedness that we can take with us in the form of values and attitudes and mindsets, even if we go somewhere else. We know that we're powerful when we have a sense of purpose. That gives meaning to our learning and to our lives. And it's a powerful driver, right? It's a motivator. Our sense of purpose might be driven by compassion. It might be driven by just noticing that something is wrong and there's gotta be a better way. Sense of purpose keeps us going. Um, when we talk to old people, that's a, one of the first things that they talk about is I stayed young. I'm celebrating my hundredth birthday because I always had a sense of purpose. I always knew I could contribute in some way. And we know from research, right, that that's what the mind and heart needs. When there's been a natural disaster, recovery goes much more smoothly when people are able to contribute and are able to help. When young people are prevented from helping, when communities are prevented from helping each other, then the trouble starts because that's where powerlessness comes in. And the definition of trauma is the powerlessness to prevent harm to oneself or to someone else. That defines a traumatic experience. So when we build agency with purpose, in other words, give people a process, this is the other thing that makes us powerful, right? What gives us agency is knowing that we know how to affect change. We know how to get it done. So having a process, any process, whether or not you change it, iterate it in the process of using the process, right? That's inevitable, that change is gonna happen. But having a process, knowing, having that self-efficacy, knowing that you know how, that's the agency that can bring about actual implementation of purposeful intent, meaningful change. And so these six ways of being powerful, given to us by nature, by virtue of being human, right? Because it's not anything else that gives us this power. Like, because if, it, if this power is given to us by our teachers or by, our politicians, then it's degenerative, right? It, it can be both. So the way that teachers can facilitate this power is with love, right? 
So it may seem weird to talk about love and power, but I'm not the first person to do it. And there's a great book called Power and Love by Adam Kahane, who's one of the leading global um, diplomats and mediators. He's a, he's a mediator. So like he's working in areas like Israel and Palestine, and, and he talks about power and love. And love makes the difference. So like a parent or a teacher could exercise degenerative power, do what I want or else, or they could exercise generative power, which is not to see that they are on an equal plane all the time with other learners in the case of teachers or with their children in the case of parents, right? They have a very important protective need, right? They have to exercise generative power to a greater extent than their children can, are able to, in order to keep the family safe, right? So they are in a different plane, but because of love, their power is generative when they exercise power over their children. But it has to be because of love. And love is the unifying force in the universe, right? Which keeps everything together, which is the, the substance of coherence, is the, the way that biodiversity actually adheres, right? Instead of entropy splitting everything apart. And it's love that is the teacher superpower that is fighting against the fragmentations that are part of the master narrative we've been talking about and the education system that facilitates that master narrative that we've been talking about, that colonializing fragmentation that it's teachers love that, that builds the relationship with the students and that empowers students with their own creative energy and helps them to tap into their own sense of purpose and motivation, that that is, the, is really you know, the basis for generative power is love. And it's the love that is given to us from our shared mother earth and that is part of natural living ecosystems, what keeps them, this biodiversity together, a unifying force is love. And then the, the book continues, so it follows the format of those generative powers, but also talks a lot about how when we exercise those generative powers, then it can, with all of those powers together, then we can experience well-being, right? That well-being can't happen when we are not safe and are not exercising those generative powers or prevented from exercising those generative powers. Instead, powerlessness, right, leads to fear, mistrust, oppression, right? We aren't liberated in our learning until we are loved and safe in every five, five modes of safety that I discuss in the, in the book, which came out of a design lab, incidentally. My students designed, the, like so much in the book came out of design labs, and, and which helped me to understand it at a practical level. 
and my water swim is gone. And then, um, and then also to think about it <coughs> at an abstract level. <coughs> Sorry. Listen, Maggie, thank you so much for your time. Really looking forward to the book coming out. Really looking forward to, to us talking and, and just working on other things uh, uh, throughout, uh, throughout you know, our, our experiences together. How do people get a hold of you if you want them to get a hold of you? So my email is maggie at designed numeral four resilience.org. I'd love to hear from anybody who is uh, listening to this and who is uh, anybody who's a friend of Benjamin's is a friend of mine. Thanks so much. Because we're all interrelated. <laughs> this has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. You can check out our website on www.coconut-thinking.design and of course, Intrepid Ed on www.intrepidednews.com. Some of you also might know that Luca Perry and Charlotte Hankin and I, as part of a collaboration between Living Futures and Coconut Thinking, have launched the WISER framework. That's W-I-S-R. I invite you to look at the website, www.wisr.life. That's www.wiser.life. Uh, and this is going to be, uh, we hope, very useful for teachers to think about the way they intra-act as we are part of nature and new ways of thinking and moving us towards more sustainable and even regenerative ways of conceptualizing the world. Look at it. Look forward to your, to your comments on that. In the meantime, www.coconut-thinking.design. And we look forward to hearing from you soon. Bye-bye.